Okay, so Helen started us off last week on this series of the Bible course, looking at the entirety of the Bible. If you haven't realized yet, this represents the entire story of the Bible. And Helen had the wonderful task last week of explaining all this, and she had to put books in the right places along it. Did did she let on her little secret? Did she? They're still here, the, the little bit stuck on saying where everything goes. I have a slightly easier task this week, because I only have to put one book on there. But just in case that was too tricky for me, I prepared with a little illustration. So the book of Genesis goes there. Do you like that? So here I go. The book of Genesis, the very beginning of the story. Now, the book of Genesis, what we're looking at here, this big story, is kind of in two parts, okay? We've got creation and then covenant, two separate parts. Creation is a large-scale story of the whole world, how the world was made, how it all began, looking at the whole thing. And then the story narrows down into the story of one particular family, and that's where the covenant bit comes in, okay? So we're, we're looking at two parts this morning. But before we start looking at the creation story, I thought we'd start off with a little quiz. Now, I know, you love a little quiz. Now, you'll be pleased to know, David, this quiz is to find out how scientific we all are, okay? Anyone remember doing science at school? I'm concerned that the the person doing science GCSE currently hasn't put his hand up there. You, You have been revising your science, Andrew, haven't you? Okay. Uh, We even have some scientists in the room who no doubt will help us with these questions if they're too tricky. So, are you ready? First scientific question. What shape is the earth? As I would say in school, talk to your partner. What shape is the earth? Talk to the person next to you. What shape is it? Okay, right. Well, what answers have we got? We're ignoring Tony with his fancy terminology. What... What shape is the earth, people? <laughs> Shut up, Brian. Oh, who invited him? And any helpful answers to that? It's what? Go on then. Elliptical sphere. What? And anyone got a slightly more comprehensible way of explaining that? A squashed orange. I'm, I'm with Helen on the squashed orange myself. Squashed round. Football-shaped, yes, ish. It's a bit of a squished football or a slightly squished orange. Okay, good. All right, it's going to get a bit trickier now, folks. Okay. What is the sky? Tell the person next to you, what is the sky? What is it? (laughs) The outside of what? (laughs) <laughs> okay, a media company. Thank you, Lydia. I like your response. Right, Brian, what is the sky? Put, put us all... Thanks, Brian. Yeah, did we all answer so the bit where atmospheric pressure decreases as you go up until you reach a vacuum where you're in space? That's what sky is, is it? And anyone, I didn't put this one in there, but we've got to throw it in there for good measure. Why is it blue? 
Reflect. Ooh, we're all very knowledgeable. I'm very impressed. Very impressed. Paul? Are you holding a... Oh. Someone's reading Genesis over there. Oh, you're just catching... Can I make a confession? I'm behind on the daily reading as well, and I'm meant to be preaching on it, but never mind. It's fine. We've got this, people. Okay, last question that you might find a little trickier. Where is heaven? In de- what Simon just said, it was in him. It's in your heart, is it? A different dimension. Kathy's just doing a windmill. Heaven is here. Lydia. Gotcha. Yeah, I wasn't referring to that one. <laughs> it is. Ooh, heaven is a place Okay, I'm, I'm going to move on before. Moving on, moving on, people. Okay, so um, the point we were trying to gain there is this idea that we all have an understanding of the earth. We have a scientific understanding of the earth is this this round sphere floating around in space, that the sky is like the atmosphere. It's, you know, that gradually gets less and less and less as you go further out into space. Um, We don't, I'm presuming most of us don't see heaven as a physical space, that we see it as, yeah, another dimension, as something spiritual. And when we come to read the story of creation in Genesis, we come to read it with that mindset, okay? We've got that knowledge in our minds. And so when we come to read, that's what we're reading it with. Now, the challenge is that when Genesis was written, written to the society of the time, that was not the picture of the world that those people had. Okay, when they were thinking about the world, they did not picture this spherical planet floating around in space. That was not their understanding. Floating and really, hmm? Fall. Oh, sorry, falling through space. We're, we're, we're going back to the old perspective, though, Tony. Who invited a scientist along this morning? Seriously. Okay. So their understanding, if I asked them the same questions that I just asked you, they would give quite different responses as they came to read the book. So their picture would be something like this. So they thought the earth was just a flat disk, okay? A little bit like Brian, who was still there, according to what he said earlier. So flat disk. Yeah, yeah, with C either side. Okay. Now, when it came to sky, sky was like this dome over this flat earth. Okay. And heavens, or heaven, was above the sky. That was the picture, their understanding of the world as they came to read this book. And so what we need to be aware of when we come to read it we're bringing a very different picture to what they have. Yes, sir. 
Charlotte. Don't, I hope it's not too difficult a question. More heavens, I would imagine. I don't know. Go, go, go back and ask them. Travel back in time and, and, and check out with them. <laughs> so, does that mean, therefore, so because this creation account in Genesis was written to people with that understanding and so was talking in terms that they would understand, does that mean, therefore, that it's wrong? Because it doesn't fit our scientific understanding of the world. Does it mean it's wrong? Well, I would say no, because actually the purpose of Genesis isn't to develop our scientific understanding of the world. That's not what it's there for. Science is trying to answer how the world is made, how it all fits together. Genesis isn't trying to answer that question. Genesis is trying to answer the question, why? Why was it made? And so as we come to read it, we're not coming looking to understand what does the Bible say about how it all fitted together and we're coming asking, what does the Bible tell us about why the earth was made? What is the purpose of the earth? What's it here for? So as we start to look into this, let's keep that in mind. Why was the earth made? I think it's time we started reading some of it then, don't you? Having talked about it lots. So Genesis, first book in the Bible. We'll start with chapter 1. The very first words of the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Why was the earth made? That was our question. Because God made it. It says it right there. It's fairly direct. Doesn't beat around the bush. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God is the reason behind it. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Take a moment to picture that. I think sometimes we sort of slip over it, but that idea of there's this chaos, but God's Spirit is there, ready to create the earth. And God said... Let there be light. And there was light. God saw that the light was good. Now, what I really love about this is that it simply says, God said, let there be light. That's all it tells us. It doesn't talk about, you know, how light was formed. It doesn't talk about, you know, swirling balls of burning gas. Tony's going to get irritated with me again at this point because this is probably completely unscientific, but, you know, swirling balls of glass in space and, and gravity drawing things together with such great pressure that there's explosions and planets are formed. And doesn't talk about any of that. It just says, God said, and it happened. Think about what that says to us about God. It's not about the how. He said it. It happened. We perhaps struggle with that. That's not what we're used to because we like to find reasoning. We like to understand how things work, don't we? 
when we're presented with something, we like to go, well, how, how does this happen? How does that all fit together? Let's, let's have some illustrations of that for a moment. When we're presented with a scenario, we instinctively will try to explain, well, what's gone on here? What's happened? So, for example, as we look at this picture, I imagine that your brains are all currently telling the little story of what's gone on here. What's Clearly, a tornado has gone through the hallway of this house, and it's nothing at all to do with the dog that's sitting there innocently. Oh, a spider behind the wallpaper. Yeah, that he was trying to get. Yeah. <laughs> the dog is helped, as dogs do. Just like Alfie helped me put the chickens to bed last night. He was so helpful. He went into their coop and gave them a kiss goodnight. It was really sweet. Yeah. Indeed, indeed. But you see how immediately we've got stories of what's going on here, yes? We're explaining it. Any answers for this one? Yeah. (laughs) This is what happens if you leave a tin of paint and a toddler unsupervised. Don't go there, people. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks, Brian. Ha, ha, ha. And anyone else need to get any tire jokes out of their system before I move on? Or? <laughs> it could be cut in half behind the trunk. So, I mean, you're analyzing, trying to find the answer for how has this happened, aren't you? <laughs> That one definitely a tornado, you think that one? No, no one's driving skills are that spectacular. And then, or Harry Potter is real, you know, who knows? Now think about this one for a minute. How? I, the, the website I got this from, I believe, had instructions for how to make one. So I'll have to go away and read those and get back to you. But you see, when we see something, we like to try and explain how it happened, how it works. We, we want reasoning. We want understanding. And the creation account doesn't answer those kinds of questions. It just tells us God said. And it happened. Knowing how something works, knowing how it's all pieced together, makes us feel secure, doesn't it? If you know how something works, you feel safer because you understand it. It makes us perhaps feel a bit more powerful, a bit more independent that we can actually figure it out for ourselves. And science does a lot of that for us. We've made amazing discoveries in science that have equipped us to feel safer or more powerful in a lot of areas. I'm rubbish at science and current affairs, so you guys are going to have to tell me what some of the amazing scientific discoveries that have been made that have empowered us, that have freed us from things. Microwave. (laughs) Thanks, Brian, for that one. Microwave. Life-changing stuff there. Huh? 
the internal combustion engine. How much has that empowered us to achieve so much more? Penicillin. Penicillin. The discovery of penicillin. So how, how many people have had antibiotics in the last year to get them over a bug? Yeah? What an amazing thing that's been. How empowering has that been? But the problem is, with every new scientific discovery that's made, every new bit of knowledge... Every new bit of empowerment from, yeah, we get this now. We find a whole bunch more questions to answer. The more you know, the more questions you've got. And how far along that journey can you go? Discovering more and more, becoming more empowered, but finding more and more questions. And so just something to reflect on is where in all of that is the place for saying, Because God. Just because God. I'm not saying that that science is wrong, that we shouldn't discover these things or anything like that. But where in our life is the place to lay down some of that understanding and wanting to know how does it work? Why is this happening? Why does that? And say, God. God said, and it was. We'll come back to that thought in a little bit. But we're going to move on now and focus on the last bit in that bit I read you. Where God, it says, God saw that light was good. And so the story of creation, which you're probably reasonably familiar with, goes on through each day of creation. God makes something. And at the end of each day, he says, that's good. It's good. But then we get to day six. And God makes people. He makes man and women. It says he makes them in his image. And God looks at his creation and says, it's very good. It's very good. It's exactly how he designed it to be. It's complete. That's why on day seven, it tells us he rests. Not because he's tired, Not because he's exhausted from all of this making. Not because he's got bored of creating. But because his work is complete. It's perfect. There is nothing more he needs to add to it. Because it is good. It is very good. (coughs) It is exactly how he designed it to be. It's good. But... There's this little story with a particular tree, isn't there? Everything was how God planned it to be, and yet the people he made deviated from his plan. God's put them in this good place where everything is just as it should be. And there's all of this food for them to eat. They can even eat fruit from the tree of eternal life. But there's one tree, just one tree. The parents amongst us will relate to this. Just one tree that God says, don't eat from that tree. The tree of knowledge of good and evil. Just everything else. It's all good. Enjoy. Don't eat from that one tree. What happens when you tell someone, you can do anything but not that one thing. 
that one thing. Well, you see, the little voice starts talking in people's minds, doesn't it? In the story, it's a serpent talking to people. That serpent representing the voice of evil, the voice of the devil saying, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Read that carefully. Has he twisted slightly what God said there? Just a little bit, yeah? Just a subtle twisting. And he says, you will certainly not die if you eat from it. God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. That voice of deception that twists it slightly. It's not quite what God said. Are you sure that's exactly what he meant? Are you sure you really trust him? Actually, I don't think it's that God's trying to keep everything perfect for you. I think God's trying to spoil your fun, frankly. There's something good there that God doesn't want you to have because he's mean. And the people listen to that voice. They eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil and everything changes. This creation that was good, that was perfect, that was exactly how it was intended to be, now has evil come into it. And there's a consequence to that. There has to be a consequence to that. But there's two consequences. The first consequence is judgment. If you've messed something up, there has to be that consequence of judgment. They've broken creation. They have chosen to disobey God and allow evil to come in. And so the first judgment is that they are sent out of that garden where they lived in close relationship with God, where they walked with God and talked with him, that relationship is broken and they have to leave the garden into a world that is not all good, into a world that has evil. But there is a second consequence, which is God's mercy. And this is the really key bit, I think, to hold on to. Because when this has happened, so Adam and Eve have eaten the fruit, they're sent out of the garden, but God says to them, to them and the serpent, remember that serpent is representing evil, it's representing the devil. And he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Because right here, at this very, this is the third chapter of the Bible, God's plan for how this is all going to be put right, how the world is going to be made good again, is in place right here. Because a descendant of this woman, a long, long, long time later, will be Jesus. And the devil will strike Jesus' heel. Jesus will be crucified but it's not a fatal blow. 
And when Jesus rose again, he crushed the devil's head, defeating evil so that we could reach the other end of this story, way over here, where it comes back to a perfect creation again. It's really important that we know that that story, that plan, is in place right from the very beginning here. It's already there. The plan is there. But there's a lot of story to get us there. So we're going to jump forwards a little bit now. We've done creation, humanity being made, the fall. That's what people refer to this eating of the fruit. That evil coming in is known as the fall. We have the story of the flood that we're going to skip over, Noah's Ark. I'm sure you've all heard that one. And move on to this interesting little story of the Tower of Babel. So we've had Noah's Ark, we've had the flood, and it goes through the story of the descendants of Noah. We have a little sort of family line of this person had that person, that person had that person. And then it says of the people that they declare, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we will be scattered over the face of the earth. A tower that reaches the heavens. Now, archaeologists have discovered many of what we think they're referring to here. Things like this. They're called, in my bestest pronunciation, ziggurats. Ziggurats. So basically, in ancient cultures, it was the done thing to build yourselves a ziggurat, which was these massive terrace structures that they were a bit of a status symbol. They were used for protection, and they were used for pagan worship. And it was all about how big they were. There was a bit of a thing of, my ziggurat's bigger than your ziggurat. Yeah? It was a competitive thing. Whose is the biggest? Who's got the biggest god? Who's got the biggest ziggurat? And so these people have declared they're going to build one of these. This is mankind striving to find that power, that independence of we can build something massive. We can create something huge. We can figure it out. We can be like God. Whoever builds the biggest tower must have the biggest, most powerful God. But the amusing thing when you read the story is it says the people have made this. And then it says, the Lord came down to the city and the tower the people were building. This enormous structure that reaches all the way to the heavens, God came down to see it. Because wherever we perceive heaven to be, he was all the way up there, sort of, tower, sorry, let me come a bit closer. No, still can't see it. I'm going to have to come a bit further down to see this tower. Still can't see it. A bit further down. He had to come all the way down to see it because he was so small. They thought it was big. But it was nothing. It was small. And this is the truth of humanity, that our creations, which we think are so impressive, we've made all these advancements, we can do these amazing things that show how incredible and powerful we are. (coughs) But for God, 
from a godly perspective, insignificant, tiny. What we create is nothing compared to God's creation. But we're inclined to think it is. We feel quite good with our achievements, when actually they're nothing compared to God's. Because however great a city or however big a tower they build, it's never going to be enough to bring creation back to how God made it in the beginning, when it was very good. They can't undo with their efforts what went wrong. And what they're doing isn't God's plan for restoring creation. God has another plan. And so when God comes down, he decides to give them different languages so that they can no longer communicate with each other to build their big tower. And it says that humanity then has all these different languages and spreads out across the earth. Interesting aside to look into the study there of why do people have different languages? Why do we have so many different languages? The Bible gives us an answer for it. It's interesting to investigate that and see what other people would say. So at this point, the story is going to zoom in on one family. We've been looking thus far at all of humanity, the whole of creation. But we're going to zoom in on one family. So this is the covenant part of it. We're zooming in on one person called Abraham. So we get a family tree tracing from Noah all the way down to this guy called Abraham. And all we really know about him at this point is that he's old and he's married to a woman called Sarah and she's barren. She can't have children. That's all all we know about them. And God calls Abraham and says to Abraham, leave the place where you are, where your family is, where your parents are, where all your land and everything is. Leave there and come to a new place I'm going to show you. Travel somewhere new. And he makes Abraham a promise. He says, I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. All peoples on earth will be blessed through this random guy, Abraham, who God's called into a new land. And from this point on, the Bible is going to follow the story of this family through the generations. A quick family tree for you. There's Abraham. He ends up having two sons. Ishmael and Isaac. Ishmael was a little, not part of God's plan, a bit on the side there. Isaac was God's plan. Isaac has twin sons, Jacob and Esau. Esau is the older brother by a little bit, but it's Jacob's family line that it traces down. Now, Jacob actually has 12 sons, which you'll know from the song. Jacob, Jacob and sons, yeah. Remember that? Yeah, some of you are nodding. Yeah, yeah. One of them was Joseph. Joseph and his amazing Technicolor dream coat. I don't think that's the biblical translation of it, but anyway, we know that story quite well. It's not actually Joseph's line 
that it follows, though, is one of the other brothers called Judah, one of the 12, that they follow the family line of. A descendant of Judah is King David, who you may well have heard of, and a descendant of King David is Jesus. All the way down there. And Jesus is the one who, through his death and resurrection, will make the way to bring creation back to how God designed it to be. This is not a story about creation being restored by people's efforts, by mankind achieving great things. This is a story about God's plan, working through individuals, through the generations, one man following God's call, and another man following God's call of God's plan to bring creation back to how it should be. Now, if you're doing the Bible course in your small groups during the week, you'll get a lot more detail about this covenant with Abraham, so do make a point of getting along to that. But for now, I just want us to consider what is there for us in this this morning, in what we've heard. What can we actually take away from this story? And there's two things I want us to have a chance to reflect on. The first is this idea of when God made the world, it's simply that God said... As we grapple with the world, as we see all the stuff that's going on around us, and the world's got some crazy stuff going on right now, hasn't it? As we look at all of that, just consider the strength that we can find in that place of saying, God said. What does God say? As we're faced with each new why, come back to what does God say? And so I have a question for you there in saying, what's God saying over you now? What's God's word over you? Not, how is this going to work out? How am I going to solve this problem? Where do I have to... What does God say? What does God say over you now? And then to know that this God, who is so powerful that he just says and it happens... When faced with the massive challenge of a broken world, didn't draw loads of people together for some huge restoration project, he chose one man. And he asked one man to follow his call. And he walked with that one man. He became known as the God of Abraham. He's often referred to in the Old Testament, they know him as the God of Abraham because he was God of one person. And I think we can take that as he is God of each one of us individually. We often see God as this big global thing. But remember, he is the God of Roz. He's the God of Simon. He's the God of Lolu. He's the God of you. God's plan is to save all of humanity through this one family line reaching to that one person of Jesus. <laughs> to get there, he starts with one man. And the people that you see every day, God's plan is for them to be saved through Jesus too. They've got a journey to get to know him. Will you be the one man 
that helped start that journey for them. We can look and see it as an overwhelming thing, but God works with individuals. Will you be the one man who follows that call? So I'm going to ask the band to come up just to close now. And encourage us, whatever's going on in the world around us, whatever's going on in our individual lives, to know that God said, and it was, he's that powerful over it all. But he is also the God of you. He is the God who works through one person. Will you let him work through you today? Will you be one man in that big story of God's plan? Let's worship him.